0: The tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We are here today at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. With us is Paula Johnson, curator of food history. I'm so excited to talk to you. Welcome. Thank you. I think that One of the most popular things about this museum is the Julia Child Kitchen. And I wanted to ask you about that. Tell us how it came to be. And I also want to talk, if it's possible, about what happened, because I know she was at Copia... And when they folded, I think that there was something that said that her pots came to the Smithsonian or something like that.
1: Sure, I'll be happy to clean okay. that up. Great. Um, All right. And by the way, thank you for uh, speaking with me this morning. It's a pleasure to see you here in D.C., Liz. It's fun to see you, too. Yeah. Yes, people ask me about Julie Child's Kitchen. Uh, here we are. It's, what, 2020. Mm-hmm. So I ask you to go back to the year 2001 which is you know, almost two decades. Right? But in 2001 when Julia Child left her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts and returned to her home state of California, there was an article in the New York Times telling the world that this was her these this was her plans. And of course, we like everybody else read this article and wondered Well, what's going to happen to all of her stuff? Unfortunately, this is the way curators think. But we really wondered about that. And to tell you the truth, our first impulse was to ask Julia if we might come to visit her in her kitchen and just to learn about it, for her, to interview her, mm-hmm. and to hear the stories. We knew there must be stories. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, we really didn't have a, a plan for collecting anything quite so large and complex. I think at the time, we were thinking maybe we would ask her for a balloon whisk, uh, you know, something. Some, some memento, I- I- yeah. almost. Yeah, yes. Some kind of iconic object. Uh-huh my colleague Raina Green gave her a call, Julia a call, and Julia that day answered her own phone and basically invited us to come speak with her in in Cambridge. By I guess it was only about forty eight hours later, we were on a plane heading up there. It was August of two thousand one. And we we got to her house, went up the stairs, she greeted us at the doorway to her now Famous Kitchen, or it was always Famous Kitchen, and she invited us to come in and have a seat around the kitchen table. It was really at that moment, as the three of us, it was Raina Green, Nancy Edwards, and myself, uh, the three of us entered, crossed the threshold into this kitchen, that we sort of had the same idea at the same time, uh, a Smithsonian mind meld, if you will. <laughs> and because we could tell that the complexity of the arrangement of this kitchen, all of the parts and pieces reflected this long history of someone who was, yes, a very accomplished professional uh, chef, but was also someone who valued the, um, the hominess, the comfort of a home kitchen. It was a very sort of unassuming place, But it also was filled with knives (laughs) and other... It was um, functional. Yes, it was very functional. But it felt so comfortable just to sit around the table. And I think that reflects the way she felt about the room. It's the beating heart of the household, she said. And that was very true. But it was also a very serious workspace. And did she do any of her taping there yes the last three of her television series were taped in her home kitchen that would have been baking with julia, julia and Jacques cooking at home and
0: whatever the other, the other one, one was. was yeah did but did she have to make any accommodations to the
1: kitchen in order to make it easy to f- tape in there yes um in fact there were still remnants of the taping on the wall on the ceiling there were these um metal poles, which is where the crew clipped the TV lights. And that was the most visible difference. But she told us that when they were taping, they would do a whole series at once, so it would take several weeks. Mm -hmm. And the whole house was basically converted. So they would take the table and and chairs out. They would remove a couple of the the cabinets. Um, They would bring in a cooking island. They would put treatments on the windows to make them, you know, jolly. So they dress the and set. They dress the yeah. set, uh-huh. um, and um, then the the camera angle was through one of the doorways, and it was happened to have been the doorway that separated the kitchen from the pastry pantry, where she did the, her, you know, her pastry work. But that was the main the main camera angle. So as we, you know, and so many people have a memory of seeing this kitchen felt that they too had been there that when we walked in it all seemed a little familiar to us too It was like oh (laughs) I know this yeah (laughs) I know this kitchen but of course I knew nothing about this this (laughs) kitchen until we really got into it but as we were sitting around the table she we were talking about sort of general things about her life and her intentions Um, and she of course informed us that she had a fully functioning kitchen already in Santa Barbara. She and her husband, Paul, who uh, passed away in or 1994, um, <clears throat> that they had set up a, a full kitchen. And so it wasn't as though all of these things had to be packed and shipped. Um, she had um, promised a couple of things to people already, and one of them was the copper pot wall that she had actually promised to Robert Mondavi, mm-hmm. who she and Robert were had worked very closely together on the development of the American Institute for Wine and Food. And so that wall was going out to Copia, the Center for Food, Wine, and the Arts, which uh, Mondavi and his wife Margaret had established there in Napa City. So that was, those were some of the things that we talked about. But I think the main thing we talked about at that first meeting was she wanted to know what our intentions were. She had a very soft spot in her heart for the Smithsonian already, for for various reasons that mm-hmm. have to do with friends from the OSS. I mean, this is a very long story. Right. And I will not tell you every single detail, <laughs> but um, she had a soft spot. And so she was predisposed, you know, to Um, uh, think positively about the, the potential of her kitchen coming to the Smithsonian, but she really wanted to know a little bit more, and I think after talking to her about food history, at this museum, Mm -hmm. and how at that time we were still in the very early stages of developing what has become a much larger initiative on food history here at the National Museum of American History, that she could see that we were very interested not in just the celebrity of Mm -hmm. Julia's Kitchen, Mm -hmm. that we really wanted to uh, take seriously her whole ideas about the importance of, of ingredients, of caring about food, of cooking, of learning new things, of sharing knowledge, of also being brave and having fun in the kitchen. Um, so that legacy of her as a teacher, as an educator, as someone who cared deeply about, about food and ingredients and technique, that those were the things that she, I think, responded to most. And so we, um, basically, she said that yes, she would be uh, willing to donate the kitchen. She had actually spoken to her family and to to various people, and she then went ahead and said yes. And then the work started. I mean, basically, she gave us free reign uh, in the kitchen. She, at the time, was 89 years old and was very busy herself in her home office. So she would retreat to her office upstairs and let us loose, the three of us, in her uh, kitchen. It took us uh, a day and a half to do as much of the inventorying as we could possibly do. We did some measured drawings to make sure that we knew where every last piece belonged. Mm -hmm. We took a lot of photographs, did some videotapes, did a little database, (laughs) but basically... We wanted to record exactly what was there and where it belonged,
0: and and did you take the things that were inside of drawers and mm-hmm. all of that too? Not just mm-hmm. things that were visible on the walls. Yeah,
1: the drawers were very
0: interesting. <laughs> you know,
1: and in fact, there were certain things that we just couldn't identify. We're like, "What is this?" <laughs> so we would put them aside and, of course, put a, a little tag on them the way museum people do. Yes, so that we were sure to put it back where it belonged. And when she came down, she would take a few breaks, and she, when she would come down, she'd ask us, well, how are you doing? And we would say, okay, here's here are the <laughs> mysteries. And she was lovely, of course, and generous, and remembered everything, and, and told some great stories about some of those things. So it was wonderful to be able to have her there as we were making the, the list of all lists, because, of course, we had no permission to collect this. We were just... Doing this yes. and mm-hmm. uh, documenting it, we seized the uh, moment. We seized the moment because we were there. And so, after this wonderful uh, couple of days with Julia, we came back to to Washington, and then, of course, had to write the memo of all memos to our collections committee and begin rolling out this idea of can we responsibly collect this room of twelve hundred parts and pieces, including equipment, books, cabinets, you know, cabinets everything from the copper. Uh, you know, there was still some copper mm-hmm. that hadn't been promised to um, to Robert Mandavi, but the copper, everything, you know, to the carrot peelers. So um, we, Raina took the lead on writing the memo, and, you know, we had to go to our collections committee. A lot of Different um, you know questions that we had to answer, of course, anytime you bring something of this sort into the museum. Yes. Um, but what we also discovered in talking about this with our colleagues throughout the museum is that there were people who really cared about Julia Child, who had their stories of their own. And we're talking people from the security force to the conservators, Mm -hmm. to the people who, you know, are in our education and and our public uh, engagement office. There were people throughout the museum who got it immediately about why this particular complex object would be appropriate for the National Museum of American History. Um, so we felt that we were, you know, we had this momentum that was, was going, and um, we did eventually get the permission to collect this. Mm-hmm. Um, we then went to um, interview her to actually do the interview that we, you know, went for the the first originally time. Yeah. to do, yes. <laughs> and so we were up there the following month, and uh, we had our our colleagues' video crew from... Uh, it was actually Julia's video crew from New York, some sound guys from Boston, and us. And we prepared to do this interview with her. Well, it turned out that the day was September eleventh, two 2001, when, oh we were, when we were there. As we were waiting for Julia to, to join us, we basically saw what was going on. Julia kept a little television in her pantry. And we rolled it out just to take a look at, you know, what was happening and saw what was happening in New York. And when we heard her coming down the elevator, we we put the television back in its place. And she pretty much sized up what was going on with us because she had been listening to the radio. So she basically told us, look, I know it'll be strange to be talking about cooking utensils when the world is changing, but this is our job today. And I think we should just go ahead, take frequent breaks, but I think we should just go ahead and do our our work. And I was very grateful to her for basically giving us a good roadmap for the day. And so we were there speaking with her, she, by that time, I think, had made the mental leap from this is my kitchen to this is the American people's kitchen. Oh, wow. And the way she was explaining about, you know, telling the stories of, of different tools, where she acquired them, how they worked, what she admired about them, why she still kept them. Why they were better than the things that she had to toss? Because you know she she does not have space to keep things around that that don't work. So, um, you know the that those kinds of stories were really important uh, for us to collect as part of collecting Julia's kitchen. Yes. Um, So then fast forward to the next two months, uh, October-November of 2001. It took us two crews of people to go and basically collect this kitchen. Um, The first was what we call the kitchen, the, um, what is, the dishpan hands crew. Oh, yes. (laughs) The dishpan hands crew. And they collected all of the small things Uh, ran everything through the dishwasher, just in case there was any food left on things, as in anybody's kitchen there would be. Um, So that was all packed up. The second crew went up and took the cabinets off the wall, disconnected the garland range, the six-burner gas garland range, uh, the big table in the center. All of those things were then packed um, in those two efforts there were a total of I think fifty five crates and boxes that were shipped then to the Smithsonian. We did not have any, you know, money for this. This was all poops. Yes. Kind of seated yes. in pants. But of course the way we think of this is that people will do anything for Julia. And when a shipping company heard that we needed shipping, um, they volunteered. They donated oh, that's the wonderful. shipping. And in fact, the guy who wanted to drive the truck was going to the CIA. He was going to be a culinary student. Um, And so he said, I want to drive that truck. So it all worked out. That is amazing. And you know, here we are uh, after 9-11. Not a lot of people are coming to Washington. Not a lot of people are traveling. But we had this new acquisition. We also had a gallery that had a bank of windows on one side. And so we, the gallery was empty. When in a museum do you find a get that empty never gallery? That never happens. but it happened. So we decided to make ourselves into the exhibition and and basically brought everything in to uh, open it up in front of the public. and So it never went into storage for planning purposes no, and then came out? No, we knew we wanted to catalog everything, photograph everything, To have a conservator look at everything, Mm -hmm. because that's, of course, the responsible thing to do when you bring something into a museum. And having this big space available for us to do it allowed us to share the excitement with the people who, you know, came to the museum during this kind of dark time. And what it also allowed us to do was to speak with people who came, because people always told stories we had viewports in the doorways, and the viewports did not have a, a top, so we could hear what everybody was saying. And, of course, people would come by and they'd talk about, look at that, look at that, I have one of those, or I remember when Julia did this. And, you know, um, it was so informative and really kind of electrifying to witness this, you know, these testimonies. We had not solicited them. We just heard them, and so we would pop out and talk to people about their stories and um, about their thoughts about Julia. Their, uh, you know, what difference did they make? Did she make in their lives? Um, why, after you know, so many years, mm-hmm. they they still wanted to open up Mastering the Art of French Cooking and try one more time, you know, to make a Queen of Sheba, Sheba cake. You know, uh, people just had all of these stories that, again, resonated with us because they demonstrated Julia's legacy. They also demonstrated that people from around the country, men, women, young people, older people, were still very much engaged by her lessons yes and uh, so so anyway uh, it took us a, a few months to do all of this work and of course but in that period of time we were also trying to get permission to do an exhibit and to basically build the kitchen inside inside that room that room mm-hmm. and uh, it just so happened that the kitchen would fit. Beautifully (laughs) in that song. When does that happen? (laughs) Exactly. It's it's what we call Julia Karma. It kept, you know, layer upon layer upon layer. Uh Um, At every decision point, if we just trusted it, it would work out. Um, So we got permission to do that. And of course, we then gave ourselves a little pressure by saying, let's do this before her 90th birthday which was in August of 2002. And, again, things just started happening. We had great volunteers, people who were chefs, people who were cooking teachers here in the D.C. area who knew what they were looking at, and they helped us do the cataloging work. They helped us with bringing in different resource materials. So, we were on a very fast track, but it just happened that it it was we were able to make it happen That's due to really wonderful so many so many people who who came to help so we did open on julia 's birthday, August of two thousand and two. We had a lovely reception, of course, our friends in the culinary community in d c and in Baltimore. Really, you know, pulled out out all the stops. stops. And so 38 chefs came to pay respects to Julia. And people still talk about that reception as being unlike anything (laughs) they've seen since, um, or before, or since. Um, She came, she was in great form. She walked, in, we let her walk into the kitchen. Unfor- unfortunately, we cannot let visitors walk inside mm-hmm. the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But she, of course, could do anything she wants. So That's right. So <laughs> she walked inside the kitchen and just felt, she said, it makes me feel like turning something on and starting to cook. So we knew we had gotten everything where it was supposed to be. Um, it, you know, in the years since then, we've just seen it, seen it all, seen a lot of people come and... Tell their own stories, bring their friends, bring their families, bring their children. Explain who Julia was to younger people. We do have a um, a loop of her television shows, thanks to Car Productions. We have 90 minutes of Julia.
0: Yeah. That's really terrific.
1: And uh, people love it. People sit and watch all of her wonderful antics, uh-huh. and, as well as, you know, her wisdom that she imparts. And just the way she presents cooking as something that is achievable and fun and is something that you, too, can enjoy. Um, that message is very loud and clear in our gallery. Um, we were able to, of course, our dream was always to have a larger gallery, This is what curators always want. Isn't there another 2,000 square feet of space available? (laughs) How about 10? But this was uh, a very small gallery, and it, it was all about Julia. We always felt that the story was much larger, that Julia was one voice in this incredibly important period of time in American history in terms of food history, the second half of the 20th century, and that we wanted to be able to tell the larger story of food and change in America, and that Julia's Kitchen would be part of this larger treatment yes. of um, of those of the transformation of the American table, so to speak. Uh, so that we got our wish several years ago, and in 2012, moved the kitchen to its current place. And it introduces this larger exhibition called Food, Transforming the American Table. Mm -hmm. And again, Julia's voice was very strong, very clear, very um, important um, to many people in the United States and around the world during that time. But there was so much else going on, and there were contradictory messages to Julia's message. And that's the kind of thing that we explore is... um, the new technologies, the innovations, the uh, both in terms of food production, how we grow food, um, distribution, preparation, and consumption, and what are the social and cultural factors that are also interwoven into that complex story. We have the food system as we know it developed during that period, and then we have this incredible change in terms of how and what we eat um, based on new uh, migrations of people and really reactions against the food system and what that looks like. So those are the kinds of things that we have now been able to explore in more depth. Um, and Julia's kitchen is kind of, you know, the launching pad yes. for exploring some of that. It's the lens, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. And I I think that it also is something that makes people feel, this is something I can identify with, mm-hmm. I can understand, and then they can go on to think about some of these other mm-hmm. some of these other ideas, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. because she had that. That humanity about her yeah. that I think people could identify with. Mm-hmm. So, when did you get the the copper
1: from Copia? Oh yes, the copper from Copia. Um, that was another Julia moment, a Julia karmic moment. It was I think 2008 when Copia closed, and that wall of copper pots. and it, it actually included. The wall, because it included the, the pegboard, yeah, the blue pegboard, upon which Paul had traced, you know, the, the copper bowls and, and all of this. And so that had been on loan to Copia. When, the, when Copia folded, we were contacted by the registrar, Um, or no, the the registrar, excuse me, the registrar contacted Julia's family and the foundation because by then Julia had passed. Julia died in in 2004. It was the foundation and Julia's family who contacted us. And they said, we would like to donate the wall of copper um, to sort of repatriate it to the rest of the, the kitchen and so it was then that the copper came to the museum. And it just so happened. It was within, I think, a couple weeks of the release of Julie and Julia, the film. Oh, wow. Yeah. More serendipity. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so, again, but that's what lights a fire under us. Because, yes, we say, OK, yes. well, I guess we'll have to do something. So. Um, for the first iteration of the exhibition, our the guys in our our cabinet shop basically put a big uh, acrylic wall where that wall of copper had been. And they took a router and did basically the outlines of the implements on the wall. So people could see through. Mm-hmm. Now we had the chance to install the actual wall of copper. And we decided not to put it back with the kitchen because that viewport was so essential. For everybody to see through, because when it gets when it gets busy here, it's really really busy. So we arranged it to have in the gallery just behind that wall, so people could look through and sort of see it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, then we had a little celebration, and we were delighted that not only were the Julia Child Foundation and uh, Julia's family were here, but also um, Nora Ephron, um, who. Of course, was right. the, yeah, the director yes. of, the, of um, the film of the film. Yeah, um, so it was kind of a lovely, um, again, an homage to to Julie Julia, and um, uh, of course, it was great to have the copper back and to have this uh, as part of now our exhibition, but and and, and it was a, a kind of a hilarious moment about a, two weeks later. The place was mobbed, people coming in to see the copper. And there was this little girl, eight or nine years old, who came running into the gallery. And she said, Mom, Mom, is this Meryl Streep's kitchen? (laughs) And I just thought, wow, that is just... (laughs) So anyway, okay. (laughs) No, I just had
0: one one question. When you went to the kitchen in Cambridge... Yes, yes. And you saw the copper on the wall, Mm -hmm. was it... Polished, 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 or did it have sort of a feeling
1: of wear? It looked exactly the way it does here. It really? was beautiful. Yes. Okay. Yes, and you know we asked about that, and mm-hmm. you know Julia had a lot of people cooking in that kitchen yes, with her, yes, yes, um, and taking classes, uh, coming in and making a meal with her, and so th- her copper was always kept always carefully. yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered that. Personally. Okay, there you That is my
0: personal question. <laughs> <Now> you
1: know.
0: <laughs> so thank you so oh, much. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate your time in doing this because I know that you are very busy.
1: Yes, um, well, museum people often are, but <laughs> we love to talk about our collections and um, we love to really think about our audiences and our visitors. I think you know that. Every year we have our Food History Weekend and one of the signature elements of Food History Weekend is the Julia Child Award um, that which is given. And then we have two days of, fest, of a festival with talks and demonstrations and that kind of thing. Again, that feels like we are continuing the legacy of Julia Child in a way that she would really appreciate because it is about the cooking but it's also about the thinking. And those sessions that we are able to put together bringing different perspectives of people are really key i think to the way we are developing our program around food history here at the smithsonian you have been listening to tip
0: of the tongue on the nitty grits network of the national food and beverage foundation visit us at our studio at the southern food and beverage museum in new orleans You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.